Good evening. Uh, thank you for coming out on a Monday evening. And thank you, too, uh, for your reception of me uh, yesterday. Uh, it was a warm reception. And many of you came up to me after and thanked me for being here. And, of course, that's an encouragement to me because this material here is really quite exciting. And I thought last evening I went through it so quickly that it just kind of skimmed over the top of you. But uh, that was not the case, at least for those of you who were uh, kind enough to come and encourage me in that regard. So thank you very much. Tonight, I don't know where to start. I wish, you had, I, wish I had you for a week. Uh, there is so much material here that I think is essential uh, that it's difficult for me to know just where to dive in and, uh, and begin with you. So if you see me fiddling with my papers up here, uh, give me a little bit of a break because um, I think I'm going to have to jump around a little bit. But again, um, <clears throat> if you have questions, this is the time to ask them. I would much rather speak to questions uh, because then I know where it is that you're at. It helps me pitch what it is that I'm going to say. Um, so don't hesitate. I understand also that if the material is new to you and your synapses have been going down 35W and then here I come and now your synapses have to go 94, it takes a little bit to formulate the question and to know how to ask that. And I understand that, but have a go. Have a go because if you have a question, you can be sure that your neighbor has a question in that regard. Okay? So, let's uh, jump in, and uh, we will see where it is that we will end up in just over an hour. Okay? We are doing uh, biblical counseling versus secular counseling. And no doubt I'm going to raise more questions than I answer. But nevertheless, the first time the plow goes through the field, it can be a little difficult, but once the... Uh, once the furrow has been plowed, then seeds can be put in there and watered. So that's what I'm hoping to do with you this evening. Biblical versus Christian counseling. Biblical counseling versus secular counseling. I'm going to quote uh, from one or two uh, psychologists and, and psychiatrists. And the reason that I'm doing this is that it's going to set the stage for how it is that we begin to critique and evaluate uh, those of a different mindset, those in the secular realm. So the quotes are a little bit extensive, and I have to do that just so you get a fuller picture of what it is that's taking place. Mark Cosgrove, uh, he might be familiar to you more than some of these other gentlemen. He has written a book, and it's called Psychology Gone Awry. And what he does in that book, he's not a Christian man, and what he does in that book is develop the thought quite thoroughly 
that our presuppositions and the assumptions that we hold to, that is our worldview, that that has a marked effect on how it is that we counsel people, on our methodology. What you believe foundationally over here has everything to do with how it is that you conceive of what counseling is or what therapy is, as the case may be. So let me quote from a different man. This man is not a Christian. He teaches psychology, or he used to teach psychology, I think he's recently retired, at California State University. He's written a very well-known book, and a book that is used in almost every graduate course that I've ever looked at with regard to psychology. And it's called The Theory and Practice of Counseling. The Theory and Practice of Counseling and Psychotherapy. In that book, Mr. Corey says this, In a survey of the current approaches to counseling, to psychotherapy, it becomes evident that there is not a common philosophy that unifies all models. Concepts regarding human nature, the goals of therapy that are rooted in that view of human nature and the techniques subscribed to tend to be different for each and every approach. In other words, what he's saying here is that the presuppositions that the therapist is committed to, the presuppositions of the different schools of psychotherapy concerning human nature are all different. All different. The psychodynamic has one view. The behaviorist has another view. The existentialist has another view. Adlerians have another view. Every one of them is committed at a foundational level to different presuppositions. And he says, as a result of that, the techniques of each, because they are different, work themselves out in methodological differences in therapy. Here he is. Differences are especially noticeable among the philosophical assumptions underlying three very important models, the psychoanalytic, the behavioral, and the existential humanist approach. It is my conviction, that is his conviction, it is his conviction that the views of human nature and the basic assumptions that undergird our views of the therapeutic process have significant implications for the way that we develop our therapeutic practices. So I think you can see what he's saying clearly, yeah? He's saying that what you believe influences how you counsel. There's no neutrality in the matter. You hold to presuppositions, you hold to assumptions, and whatever assumptions you hold to, that will dictate what therapeutic process you are committed to. So for all the talk of science in psychotherapy and and psychology, there's no agreement. There's absolutely no agreement. There's no standard of normality. Who's taken Psych 101? Who's taken abnormal psych? What's abnormal psych? What's normal psych? (laughs) What's abnormal psych? But these concepts, you see, they come in and they're part of our language and we really haven't done our homework well enough to understand the significance of 
hold into this kind of vocabulary and the concepts that come with it. So there's no standard. But Freud would say that Skinner is wrong. And Skinner would say, of course, that Freud is wrong. So there's absolutely no truth, but you're wrong. So you see, the Freudian analyst and the client-centered um, and the client-centered therapist, that would be a fellow like Carl Rogers, they work in ways that are considerably different from each other because they have at root very different concepts of human nature. Now, I mention that to you simply because many folks, Christian folks in particular, they think that they're all in agreement out there. Not that there aren't any differences in therapy, but the thinking doesn't often go any deeper than that. They assume that psychologists and psychiatrists all agree. And more often than not, Christians have absolutely no idea about how the fact that psychologists and psychiatrists, they're all believers. There's not one of them out there that isn't believer. And whenever it is that you go to a counselor, you are going to a believing counselor. That is to say, you are going to somebody who is fundamentally religious. And he's fundamentally religious, not because he says that he is religious. He is, in fact, fundamentally religious because God created them that way. Even though he desires at every point to deny that that is the case. But to deny that that is the case is a religious commitment. So there's no neutrality in the matter. Here's the way I like to say it. You're either a good theologian or you're a bad theologian. At the end of the day, that is, in fact, the case. Your life is theological. And to the degree that you live out your life well before God, that is a testimony to your theology. That doesn't mean to say you need a PhD in systematic theology. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. But you do need to know the Scriptures. So, the fundamental presupposition, all, all counselors are believers. All counselors have a conviction about man. If you have a pencil and paper, let me just give you some names and books here. I'm not going to go through them. I don't have the time. But if you do, in these long winter nights, here's a reading list for you. Paul Witz. Paul Witz. V-I-T-Z. Sorry. V-I-T-Z. V-I-T-Z. Psychology of Religion. That's the name of that book. Psychology of Religion. E. Fuller Torrey. E. Fuller Torrey. The name of his book is The Death of Psychiatry. The Death of Psychiatry. J. Adams. J. Adams. More Than Redemption. Lovely title, huh? More Than Redemption. And then Mark Cosgrove, Mark Cosgrove, C-O-S-G-R-O-V-E, Mark Cosgrove, Psychology Gone Awry. And then one more, in case you get through all those. Gerald Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, 
theory and practice of counselling and psychotherapy. Theory and practice of counselling and psychotherapy. So Pastor Dan said I couldn't give you any homework so I can't uh, have any papers from you on those. So all counsellors, they have convictions. What is it that they have convictions about? Not that all these convictions are conscious, but they all have convictions. They have convictions first about God. They have convictions about man. Convictions about truth. Convictions about the origin and the cause of problems. About man's responsibility. About solutions to the problems that men get themselves into. About goals. What is the goal of counseling? About the roles of the counselor and the counselee. Is the counselor just to be passive, like we mentioned yesterday, that he can't give any advice because that's against his fundamental commitment about what a man is? Because if you give advice to a man, you are interfering with the evolutionary flow. And that's the problem with the counselee to start with. His mom and dad disciplined him and the police disciplined him and therefore they stopped him becoming the person that he was truly meant to be. They inhibited that evolutionary flow that allowed him to be self-actualized. That tells you what the role of the counselor is going to be in that particular counseling situation. And it tells you what the counselee is going to do. He's going to tell you about his feelings and about how his mom and dad disciplined him and how the police caught him and did this and did that. And then the last thing, they have convictions about counseling techniques and methods. So there isn't a psychologist and a psychiatrist out there that isn't committed to one of these things. And these things here that I've listed for you tonight, they are at bottom fundamentally religious commitments. Every counselor, every psychiatrist is a believer. So, if I had you for a week, I would go through the psychodynamic approach from head to foot. I'd go through the behaviorist approach head to foot. And I'd go through the existential humanist head to foot. But I don't have you that long. So, I'm going to keep you and I'm going to do the psychodynamic approach. I think that is probably familiar to you. You might not know it as a psychodynamic approach, but I bet some of your language betrays that you've heard of Freud somewhere along the line. And I'll be able to tell that by how loud you laugh when I say certain things. Although usually when I tell jokes, nobody laughs. When I'm perfectly serious, everybody laughs. So I won't tell you when I'm take, telling a joke. If you laugh, I'll just take it for what it's worth. Thank you. Psychodynamic approach. Psychodynamic approach. Key figures. Anybody tell me any key figures?
Freud. Woman in the corner says Freud. Psychodynamic approach. There's an institute on 494 and Cedar. Alfred Adler. Heard of Alfred Adler? If you took Psych 101, you've heard of Alfred Adler. Anybody else? Carl Jung. Give me a... And then I know where you're at. Yeah, yeah. You can't heard their names. Karen Horney. Not so popular, really. Harry Stack Sullivan. These are all the big names. Harry Stack Sullivan. Eric Erickson. Family Systems. Franz Alexander. Okay, They're the big names in the psychodynamic school. They're... They're the foundational bunch, if you want to say that. So their basic philosophy, what are these guys committed to? Now, if they were all sat in a row here, they wouldn't be all in agreement with what it is that I'm going to tell you to the last detail. But these are the basic tenets of the psychodynamic school. The basic philosophy, number one, internal forces. They hold to internal forces over which man has no control. And they, the internal forces, they are at the center of your personality. So the psychodynamic approach emphasizes these internal, notice, internal forces. Man, you, you have little or absolutely no control over these forces. And these forces that are inside of you that you don't know, They are pressing for gratification. And whether you know it or not, you are controlled by these internal forces. And we can already see here, I think, with just a little bit of thought, the victim theme is coming to expression here. The second thing that they are committed to. To understand man, you must understand him psychodynamically. How about that, eh? To understand man, you must understand him psychodynamically. That's a huge phrase, really. But what that means is that we must understand what it is that motivates you. That's the key. We have to understand what it is that motivates you. And if you're going to understand man then at the very same time, you have to hit on the motivation. That's why you go for depth counseling to a Freudian. That's why it takes you 18 years of psychoanalysis, because they have to get to the unconscious side of you, because that's where these two forces are fighting And motivating you to do what it is that you do. And you don't even know that that is the case. So we don't deal with the present. You see, if if you're committed to that presupposition, then when you go and see a Freudian, the Freudian doesn't deal with the present, does he? Because the present really doesn't hold any water for him. He has to deal with the past. So he's already committed to that in terms of his methodology. 
So he says, thirdly, that all behavior is caused. Behavior is not determined by what is rational. That can't be. Your behavior is not determined in the least by what it is that you think or how it is that you think. All behavior, listen to the language here, all behavior is irrational and unconscious. And the reason that it's unconscious or your unconsciousness, that's full of repressed experiences that have happened in your life. And these experiences in the past, they have been repressed. That is why you are not aware of them, but nevertheless, even though they are repressed, they influence you by biological and instinctual needs. This is before you've even walked in the door. The guy has got you pegged. Fourth, You are unaware of all this. That is to say, you are unaware of the underlying causes for your conduct. You have no idea why you came here tonight. It wasn't because you thought you were coming here, because that's rational. So there's something deep in your unconscious. These forces that are fighting, that made you come here. Faith. Two basic instincts. Anybody know what they are? In psychodynamic theory? Two basic instincts. It. No, not quite. We're just about to get to the id. Two forces. Eros, Thanatos. Some people knew that. You've got to speak, you know. Eros and Thanatos. Power and destruction. That's what they're involved in. Love, death. Life, death. These are the two forces that are at war in you. Some of the fundamental principles, then, that arise out of these presuppositions. I'm going to mention things, really, that are not very pleasant to hear. So I don't wish to offend anybody, but these are right out of the textbook on psychodynamic theory. Sex underlies everything. It underlies everything. That is the ultimate, ultimate Freudian presupposition. Anybody who comes into counseling has a sexual problem, period. Whatever it might look like in the way that you behave is almost irrelevant. Depth counseling, and I can be sure that I'll find whatever it is connected with your sexuality. So the reason that you are saving your money in a big bank account is because you weren't toilet trained very well. Second, all dreams are fundamentally sexual. 
All dreams are fundamentally sexual. I won't go into the details there. You can read his book on dreams. It's really not worth reading. At all. It's not worth reading. But he has a book on dreams. Third one. All psychological difficulties are manifestations of your libido. Mr. Jones, he's afraid of leaning out of a third floor window. And the reason that he is afraid of leaning out of a third floor window is not because he gets dizzy and he's afraid of heights. It's because he surprised his mother in the shower when he was a boy. Quote. Fourth. All boys are sexually attracted to their mothers. Sometimes this desire is conscience, is conscious, but it's often unconscious. There is, of course, a reason for that. And the reason that it is unconscious and why it has been repressed is because it's not an acceptable social norm. So your natural desire for your mom is not acceptable socially You have repressed it, and that is why you are acting out the particular way that you are. All boys want to murder their father. Isn't this just astonishing that you can get away with this? All all boys want to murder their father. Again, that's not conscious. You didn't know that, did you? No, I didn't think you did. First sign of that is denial. (laughs) Fifth, the life of the child is fundamentally sexual. His interest, that is the child, his interest in the world and in play is fundamentally sexually oriented. There's even a close connection, he says, or a close association between infantile sexuality and when the child goes to the bathroom. There's a sexual coloring to the child's relationship with new relatives and when the child is sucking the thumb, he is really doing something that he ought not to be doing. So Freud says, generally speaking, quote, Every human being oscillates in his life between heterosexuality and homosexuality. This means, he says, that all through life men and women fluctuate between desires of becoming either heterosexual or homosexual. So, all of us are fundamentally bisexual in nature. One of our basic instincts, he says, is our desire for pleasure, for sensuality. And then on the other hand, there is this diet. That's eros. That's the motivating force. And then on the other side, the other motivating force is the, is the power of destruction. And that is thanatos. So you have these two tensions in 
the innermost recesses of who you are. Back onto the main drift. The sixth one. The early years of a person's life are of critical importance. Primarily the first five years. Remember, these are fundamental assumptions of psychodynamic counseling. Early years of a person's life are of critical importance. That is, the first five years. Seven, problems develop because man's basic drives or his instincts are thwarted and unfulfilled. So when the drive for pleasure, that's eros, when the drive for pleasure is not satisfied, as a result of that dissatisfaction, you develop problems in your life. So, eight, you become neurotic. And these neurotic symptoms are a result of unconscious forces. And these conflicts, other conflicts between the different aspects of a person's personality. Nine, problems are solved. This is you now going to the therapist the psychoanalytic therapist, the problems are solved as people gain insight. There's that word again. You have to remember that. As people gain insight into their unconscious conflicts and relive the past experience. Somebody just came into my mind and I can't remember the name of the guy, but he was on Channel 2. You know when they raise money? They put these guys on. Well, this guy, he used to get a baseball bat and beat a teddy bear. Does anybody remember him? He was really quite famous. But that's what he's doing. The teddy bear is his dad. And he would get the baseball out and beat the tar out of his dad. He'd relive what he wasn't able to do when he was a child, but now he's able to do it, although his father isn't alive. Nevertheless, Freud holds to a reality principle. So you, and if you can't get a reality principle, that is the father himself, then you substitute the father for this big teddy bear. And he beat the tar out of the teddy bear. That was his therapy. So the key word here is insight. People, you will remember, are not aware of these unconscious conflicts. You are not aware of their anxiety and how these different aspects of your personality is actually fighting within you. And so as the person gets insight into these conflicts that are taking place, as you begin to relive these past experiences, your problems are solved. You become less anxious and less neurotic in your life. So the point to remember here with regard to psychoanalysis is that it's insight. You have to develop insight. Any thoughts on that or questions or clarifications or anything?
the question was, what is the appeal? Why did this kind of thing ever become popular? Because when you hear it like this, it sounds so outrageous. Um, I think if I can answer that in general terms, it's the beginning of a change in worldview. From a Christian world and life view, that's not to say that everybody was a Christian, but nevertheless, the Christian world and life view held sway. There was God. There were His people. There was nature that was created by God. Um, Darwin comes along. And uh, no, before that, Newton comes along. And although Newton was a Christian, he was a fellow who could account for laws in creation without God. Not that he ever intended that ever to be the case. But once the secularists got hold of that, that there was such a thing as natural law, then they could account for the running of the creation without God. So God was beginning to be moved out of the picture. And who was it that came after Newton? Now that nature is out, now that God is out of the picture, with nature, what's the next move? Man has to be accounted for without God. So who came along and accounted for man? Anybody? Darwin! Darwin came along and accounted for man. So there was this loss of objectivity and, and, and a Christian world and life view. Man became the center of creation. And truth then became to be defined by the individual. Everything became subjective. It was a whole pendulum swing. Everything now is subjective. And I think on top of that, based, with what we, based on what we would call total depravity, when you get a guy like Freud, he just let his imagination run wild. Now, I'm sure there's better explanations than the one that I gave you there. Why Freud? Yeah, I don't know why Freud in particular. Yeah, I don't know why Freud in particular. Certainly there were others. But maybe it was with regard to the emphasis on sex and things like that that became uh, appealing. Yeah. So those are the underlying presuppositions. Let's have a look at some of the key concepts. Some of the key concepts. We've mentioned them a little bit. I just want to unpack them further. Unconscious forces. Man... That's you. You don't have immediate access to these forces that are actually determinative for your behavior. You're helpless. You're a victim. These things are going on, but you don't know why or what to do or how to get to them. So all you have, if you can picture an iceberg, your consciousness is just the top of the iceberg. You 
have access to the tip of the iceberg, but what really matters in your life is that which is under the water. And that which is under the water is your unconscious. Second thing, personality structure. Who you are, what you are made of. Personality structure. You are composed of three major elements. The id. The id. That is called the seething cauldron of impulses. The seething cauldron of impulses. The id is a reservoir. It's a psychic reservoir of energy and instincts and impulses. And in the id are the two forces, Eros and Thanatos. Seething cauldron of impulses, psychic energy. This psychic energy is composed of Eros and Thanatos. So the id, then, is the unconscious force and it operates according to a pleasure principle. It seeks pleasure. It seeks satisfaction in everything that it does. That's the id. The second element or aspect of your personality is the ego. <laughs> is the ego. So, the ego is an intermediary force and it lies, if you can look at it topographically, it lies between the id and the superego. You have the id, and then above that, you have the ego. And it's the ego's job to find a satisfactory way of satisfying the impulses of the id. The ego, that functions according to a reality principle. It functions according to a reality principle. That is to say, the ego, it has to find a way of satisfying the sensual desires of the id, but it has to do it in an acceptable way, culturally. And sociologically, it can't just satisfy the id any way that it wants to satisfy the id. It has to satisfy it according to what is real, that is, social norms. But it has to do that without violating the superego. The id, the ego has to satisfy the desires of the id, but it has to do that in a way that is socially acceptable, and in doing that, it cannot violate the third level of your personality, which is the superego. It's the superego that functions on the moral principle. It's a person's moral code. It's your sense of right and wrong. And this sense of right and wrong develops partly from your upbringing and partly from society. That's the moral code. So, here you have the id, 
and it's crying out for satisfaction. And then you have the ego, and the ego is saying, no, no, let go of my ego. <laughs> you got that one. Says, no, no, I can't satisfy you that way. You cannot kill your father. You cannot kill your father because the superego says that that is a wrong thing to do. Because if you do that, that will be painful and you will have a sense of guilt. So you see, they use this religious language, but the guilt, of course, that they are not talking about is transgression of God's law. The guilt is that the id didn't get what it wanted and so it felt bad. Guilty. So you repress that desire to kill your father. It's suppressed so far down that eventually becomes part of the unconscious. And then you actually refuse to believe that you wanted to kill your father. So the ego has satisfied the desires of the id. But eventually it will come back to haunt you. So as a result of this conflict, man, you, experience anxiety. So now it's the job of the ego to fulfill the desires of the id without violating the superego. And as the desires of the id are satisfied without offending the moral code that is the superego, then anxiety is released. And you reach homeostasis. If, on the other hand, the ego doesn't manage to do that, to satisfy the id, then you end up with a fixation. Something happens, it's repressed, and that particular fixation, that particular unsatisfied desire, it shows up in your life with a serious problem. But therapy, you see, it allows us to get back to those early years in your life, somewhere in the first five years of your life, to find out where something went wrong in your upbringing. Because that's when your id was not originally satisfied so what's to be noted again sorry to be so redundant here these are presuppositions this is what the therapist is thinking about before you ever come in the door and lay down your money he's looking for a conflict between the id and the superego that's what's causing your problem in college I told you I took psychology I was told that that was the problem with Paul in Romans 7. Imagine that. Integration of faith and learning. I have to go a little faster if you don't mind. Growth stages. The child develops, moves through seven stages of psychosexual Development. First one, oral stage. Ever heard of an oral stage? <laughs> I'll just keep going. <laughs> oral stage. The child's life centers around his mouth. 
he experiences pleasurable erotic pleasure from sucking. During this stage, he either learns to trust or distrust. This leads to him in later life, if he's distrustful, he's a suspicious character because he failed to suck in his early sexual, psychosexual stage. Anal stage. Second year of life. The child begins to experience pleasant sensations in going to the bathroom. He is expected to master and control his bowels. He learns to express his negative feelings properly or deny them, depending on whether or not he wants to get back on you. So at this stage, he either learns to be independent, properly autonomous, or he learns to be excessively dependent and helpless. So, if your child is helpless and can't do anything, like get out of bed and do anything, then you did not potty train him correctly. Phallic stage. Ages between three and six, pleasurable sensation in handling genitals. At this time, the child begins to learn about his attitudes to his sexuality sexual roles, sexual feelings. The child becomes comfortable with himself, either as a boy or a girl. They sense their sexual role and sexual identity. And so if there's problems with regard to sexual identity in later life, then you go back to this stage in psychosexual development. And that's where you dig around and find the problem. That's where you have to deal with the id and the ego and the superego and get all that fixed so that you will know who you are in fact sexually. Fourth one. Anxiety. That's an important concept in psychodynamic theory and the view is simply that it's the repression of basic conflicts between the person's id and superego. I won't go through the rest of the defense mechanisms. You can ask questions while I'm... Uh, Flipping through my notes here. Not all at once, though. Yes, a question. Yes. Uh, pardon me for being so black and white on these matters. They're completely incorrect. Okay? Now, the desire part of things and the satisfaction part of things, that's God's common grace to people. So, from a Christian perspective, we would say, what is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So, that's a theological answer. To your question, we are satisfied in God, but we are satisfied in God on God's terms, not on my terms. Satisfaction isn't really a good way of looking at it, but I think it might help you see where I'm coming from. 
So I didn't go through everything. I didn't go through the, uh, the uh, behaviorist and the existential humanist. Okay? So I'm going to give you another list here, if you don't mind. Uh, and I'm going to tell you that there are lots of things that are different in those three schools of thought, but there are some unifying factors. Here are the unifying factors. Between all um, secular psychological theories. All of them are atheistic. They deny the existence of God. God is not central to their system and therefore God is not an important part of the solution. So when behavior is changed and anxiety is reduced and no doubt that happens... It's just replaced by one godly, ungodly pattern with another ungodly pattern. In other words, it's Christless. There's no gospel there. The second one, they're all based upon the evolutionary hypothesis. Man is an animal of some sort, somewhere on the chain of being, but he is fundamentally an animal. He's a product of evolutionary thought. Third, they're all humanistic. They're humanistic in their view of truth, if there is such a thing. There's no need for special revelation or any revelation, general revelation in nature or special revelation, the Word of God. They don't turn to the Scriptures to find truth. And if there is such a thing as truth, then it is discoverable only by taking statistical uh, surveys or looking in the laboratory. So, if you take a statistical survey about everybody who sins, and it comes back 100%, you would have to say that sin is normal. But sin isn't normal. Otherwise, Jesus would be abnormal. And he would be the subject of abnormal psych, which is absolutely ridiculous. So, there are humanistic fourth, there are humanists, they are humanist in their explanation of man's problems. There is no talk of sin, there is no talk of depravity, and there is no guilt. That is to say, there is no guilt that is um, a result of man's transgression of God's law. Fifth. They're humanistic in their view then of sin and guilt. False guilt, that is to say the id just doesn't get what it wants. Sin is not viewed in terms of the violation of God's will. Sin is viewed simply as an inability for you to self-actualize or for the id not to get what it desires. Six, man's responsibility Before God and his problems, psychodynamic theory says that man is not responsible. Behaviorism says that man is not responsible. And existential humanism says that man is not responsible. Seven, they are humanistic in the way that they determine their values and their standards. They do not turn to the scriptures. They do not look to God. Eight. 
They're humanistic in their understanding of how problems are to be treated. None of these systems ever mentions the need for regeneration. How could they? They don't speak about the cross of Christ, satisfaction for sin and the work of the Holy Spirit, and they have no categories whatsoever to speak about justification and about sanctification. Last, they are humanistic with respect to their counseling goals. Depending on how you view the animal has everything to do with where you think he should go. If he is not a creature of God, made in God's image, then somebody else determines what his purpose is on this earth. And if he's going to be a good citizen, then you move towards statism. So all these theories, you see, are interlocked, not just simply with psychological theory, but also with economic and political theory. All you have to think about is fellows like Karl Marx, etc., etc. So, that's humanistic presuppositions. The last list was everything that they have in common and I have about 10 minutes to contradict that with regard to scriptural matters. So, biblical counselors, they are, of course, believers. They hold to presuppositions, too, about man. They say that man is created by God. So, if you can keep that other list in your mind over here, and then when I speak of this list, just contrast it. They have presuppositions about man. We say that man is created by God. Man is a distinct creation of God. He is not a product of evolution. He is a creature. There are two realities in this world, God and his creation. There is not one. Man is a distinct created creature. And he is created in the image of God. And because man was made in the image and likeness of God, he has potential and he has God-given resources. He is dependent. He was created dependent. Not autonomous. Even in the garden before sin entered the world, God made both Adam and Eve to be dependent upon him and upon one another. That is to say that man does not have all the resources he needs within himself. Fourth, he was created for a purpose. And that purpose, as we said just a moment ago, was to glorify God. He is not created to self-actualize, not to develop his own potential, not of satisfying his own basic instincts. Revelation 4.11 says, For thy pleasure we were and are created. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. These are the biblical presuppositions that we have. And if so, if men are having problems in their lives, then these presuppositions guide and inform as to how best we are to help him in counseling. These are the things that we have in our mind before you come in for counseling. 
that you are created in the image of God, that you are dependent, that you are creative, and that you have a purpose in this world, a God-given purpose in this world. All these things, I think, you can begin to see form the context of what goes on in the life of the church and when you come in for pastoral counseling. You are to glorify God. That is your existence. You are to live in a community. It's not good for man to be alone. He was never made to be independent. He was, uh, he was never made to have all his resources together. And this was said before sin ever entered the world. In other words, we can say that what is normal for us is that which is before the fall. That is normal. Sin is not normal. We have a standard of truth and righteousness. Surely that's in God. And that comes out in His revelation in Holy Scripture. When He created man, He created man good. He also created man mature. So the standard of what is normal when you look at a human being is not the ages one through five in the psychosexual stages. The child is not pristine. The child is not the model by which we are to get back to. Adam and Eve are the model and they were created mature. That is what the standard of normality is. Man was created to be Lord over the earth. He was created to have dominion. He had to work. Work is not part of the fall. Toil is part of the fall. He was created to have dominion. The world was created by God, but God gave the world to man so that he could rule over the fishes of the air, fishes of the air and the birds of the sea. He could do all kinds of things. He was so creative. So we're dealing here, you see, with a man... Uh, who was made to contribute and to be a co-laborer with God in the kingdom. The garden was the kingdom of God on earth. It's where God walked and talked with Adam in the cool of the day. We learned that yesterday. And I don't know how biblical this is, so don't quote me. Okay? But the way that I envision this is you have Adam and Eve in the garden walking and talking with God in the cool of the day, and God says, get to work. So Adam and Eve get to work, and as they get to work, the garden, the bounds of the garden extend. And as the, as the garden extends, that is the kingdom of God on earth extends, then Adam and Eve run up against things that they don't know what to do and how to do it. So they run back to God and they say, God, how, we do, how do we do this? We met up with this. What do we do here? He tells them and then they go back out and the extension of the garden goes further in, out, in, out until we would hope that the knowledge of the Lord fills the earth like the waters cover the sea. But of course, that didn't happen. Adam sinned. And so there set up there a rival kingdom. God no longer walked and talked with his people in the cool of the day until, of course, that came about in later revelation. So man is created, you see, to have dominion and to exercise the lordship of God over his creation. The world belongs to man. 
So there's environmentalism in there, there's economic theory in there, there's political theory in there, and all these things that we're speaking about here have to arise out of God's Scripture. The Scriptures are sufficient for these martyrs. The problem is that we're as thick as two short planks and we don't do the work that we need to do in the Scripture to figure out how it is that we are to live in this world and use all the resources in a God-given manner. So all of these things, you see, they come to bear when you come into church and you hear the Word of the Lord proclaimed. It's boot camp. That's why you come to church. It's boot camp. You don't come in to escape. You come in to get equipped to do the work of the kingdom. You hear the preaching of the word and you are shepherded and you are equipped and so you go out, you see, and you extend, if I might say it this way, the boundaries of the garden. And then, Lord willing, the church down the road does exactly the same thing and their little circle extends. The other church, their circle extends until eventually all the circles touch. And that is the commission that is given to the church to baptize the nations and to teach them everything that God has commanded them to observe. And the Lord has promised that he will be with his church until the end of the age. So, some questions, please. I've said an awful lot. And I have more to say, but we're not going to be able to get through that. So, if you have questions, please. Yes. Yeah. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Exactly. <laughs> I always wanted to I always wanted to be a singer, but this is it. I would say you can thank the Lord for that, because those guys who are counseling you, if your help is indeed help, that's God's grace. But why just settle for a bucket when you can have an ocean full of God's grace? So I'm happy for you, but I think you ought to give it some further consideration. Do you think it has to do maybe with the goal? What is the goal of our... We talked talk a little bit about being formed in the image of Christ versus like kind of just being happy. Yeah. Having a good life that everything seems... Yeah, yeah depending, on, good, depending on how well you know the guy... Yeah, yeah, I think you can say exa- exactly that. Yeah, so what's the goal here? I mean, are you happy? Is counseling a success just because you have been relieved of your symptoms? Or is counseling a success because your counselor has been faithful to the Scriptures? Which might mean that you are not relieved of your symptoms. But because you have the right perspective on God and yourself and problems, you can bear up under them. Yeah, success in counseling doesn't depend on you having a happy marriage. Success in counseling depends on 
the faithfulness of the counselor to the word of God and your submission to it, regardless of whether your marriage is happy. Do we believe that your marriage will be happy? Yes, we do. But if it isn't, then that doesn't give you an excuse to do what you like and turn your back on God and say, well, I did this and Pastor Ian said that and my wife still hasn't come home. Because what you're doing there is obligating God to bless you. And if you obligate God to bless you, then that is not grace, is it? You're telling him what to do. And that's the problem. So it's submission to the Word of God in all circumstances that you face in your life. And there's nothing harder than that. But having said that, you have the grace to do it because God has provided you that grace to do that. And your model for that is none other than Jesus himself. Do you think he liked it? Do you think when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was going, yeah. I really want to drink this cup, God. Huh. I'm just loving this. I just can't wait till tomorrow. Let this cup pass from my lips. See? So he wasn't living a life according to his feelings. Let thy will be done, not my will be done. He submitted his will to the just judgment of God in that regard. Utter submission. Was he blessed? Oh, yes, was he blessed. And because of that, you are blessed. And because he succeeded and he has granted to you the Spirit of Christ, you can succeed in your obedience to God and in your marriage. It's absolutely tremendous. That's why I wish I kind of had you for a week here. Because you can unpack some of this theology that I just through on you today. You know, my Hebrew, used to, Hebrew teacher used to say when I complained how much Hebrew we got, we had, we had six chapters of Proverbs a night, and then when we got through six chapters of Proverbs a night, we had to do six chapters of Psalms. And we just complained bitterly, and he said, hey, the more I throw at you, the more it's going to stick. That was his rationale. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, there are some schools that follow a particular model, like a Freudian model, like the Alfred Adler School upon 494 and Cedar. But by and large, if you go to a secular school, usually they'll follow one model more than the other. If you go to a Christian school, you'll get an eclectic bunch. You'll get a little bit here and a little bit there. And that's what they understand by integration of faith and learning. You see, they say that all truth is God's truth. And I want to agree that all truth is God's truth. But all truth is God's truth only when you have a touchstone to know whether what is being said is true. So the scripture is God's truth and God's truth alone. If you just simply say all truth is God's truth, then what's error? How do you know what error is if all truth is God's truth? 
So there's these catchy phrases that we use as Christians, you know, and it creeps under the door in the church and we let it come down here and the next thing you know, we're saying it. And we shouldn't. Yes. I won't hold that against you. Well, yeah, I know, right? I've definitely taken issue with, um, I've definitely been the guy in the office being like, I don't believe this, like after class or whatever. But um, how much would someone, if someone was interested to use that psychology degree and be a Christian counselor, how much, how much of that secular psychology would they have to be exposed to in their living? Like, would they have to be... You mean, you mean if they wanted to be licensed by the state? Oh, well, then I guess that would be very secular, right? Right. Um, what if it wasn't like that? What if, I mean, then you have to be a minister. Okay, okay. And if you're not a minister, then you have to be an elder. And if you're not a minister or an elder, then you have to be full of knowledge and goodness because then you're competent to counsel. You don't need it. You don't need it. Don't waste your money. Labor, not for that which perishes, but your treasure is in heaven. Well, thank you for your patience there. I talked and talked and talked. and Yesterday when I finished, there were no questions. And then I got out there. <laughs> questions. So I'll wait out there. <laughs> okay, let's pray, shall we? Merciful God and Father in heaven, how great Thou art. Your word, O Lord, is like a lamp unto our feet so that we may see how to walk so that we may not veer to the left or to the right, although we are prone to wander. Gracious God and Father in heaven, we are grateful, O Lord, beyond measure for your word. How exciting it is, how thrilling it is, O Lord, to be able to hold in our hands the very word of God, a word of God that brings light and life into our hearts. It dispels death and darkness from our hearts, replaces it with love and faithfulness. We ask, O Lord, as we go from here, that we would meditate on these things, that we would hold your word near and dear to our hearts, on our foreheads, O Lord, and on our arms, in our going out and in our coming in, in the totality of our lives, your word, O Lord, is precious to us. Forgive us, O Lord, for our failures, for they are great and they are many. Especially, O Lord, in our lack of discernment with regard to these cultural influences that creep into the church. We ask for your blessing here upon Eden for the ministry of the Word and ordinances, for the discipline of the church. We pray, O Lord, for those who come, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, that they might be equipped to do the work of the kingdom. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching us to war. It is a song, it is a hymn, O Lord, that has gone out. It's gone out, O Lord, in the church, and there are those that don't even know those words. Forgive us, O Lord, for the sake of Christ. Help us persevere in the faith and do that which is right, so that we might show ourselves approved unto God. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.